I lit a candle in my office. Like I like, I'm one of those guys. I like the scented candles. Yeah. And I got to the bottom and my office now looks like a 1920s poker room. I just have to open up <laughs> a, a window. <laughs> Give me a sec. Elliot Patchouli. <laughs> you would think I just smoked like a pack of unfiltered camels in here. Elliot, it's Sunday evening. It's just before nine o'clock Eastern and chasing this Tony D'Angelo story since you tweeted that he had been placed on waivers by the New York Rangers has a certain cats and laser pointer element about it. But what do we know right now? So let's just traffic in, in what I know. And I can say that I'm confident is true without anybody willing to go on the record. Saturday night, Rangers Penguins. Into the slot, wrist shot deflected in on goal by Zucker, stopped by Georgiev. Zucker gets it back, shoots one up over the net. 10 seconds before the winning goal is scored, Georgiev and D'Angelo have a mix up, a miscommunication behind the net. By Marino. He lost it, but he battled at the end of a shift to get it back. He goes for a change. Crosby and Rust out there now for the Penguins. Joining them is Joseph. He has it to the near side for Rust. Misfired on the pass. Comes behind the net for Georgiev. Turns it over to Rust. Sidney Crosby gets in between them. And the Rangers players, who are already on the ice for a while and noticeably exhausted, can't get off. Crosby scores, and the Penguins win in overtime. Lock the doors and turn out the lights because the Penguins have won this game in overtime. Sidney Crosby on Broadway, 5-4 Penn. Oh, my captain, my captain comes to save the day. <laughs> they go off the ice. Georgiev is sitting disappointed like any competitive person, especially a goaltender, would be after a game like that. And D'Angelo walks by him and makes a sarcastic crack to him. And Yorgiev clocks him. And they go at it and their teammates break it up. Later that night, the Rangers call D'Angelo. I don't know if they call him or they call his agent or what they do. And they say, that's the last straw. You're going on waivers tomorrow. And then at noon Eastern... That's what happens. And it's 24 hours before another team can pick him up at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Monday after this podcast is released. But that's kind of where we are. Right? That's what happened. You know, I know there are so many rumors. I know that D'Angelo's history probably makes a lot of those rumors seem believable, but I was really cautioned to be careful about what I said because there are a number of things that are out there that are not true or are half-truths. And people just said, be careful Mm -hmm. because it's one of those things that's going to unfold in real time and you have to be careful. So that's the incident. I believe the incident I just described is what happened from the end of the game to the confrontation to the breaking up by the teammates, to the informing that he was going on waivers. So what are the options now for the New York Rangers? And let's assume, and this might be wrong, perhaps in a situation like this, Merrick, you shouldn't assume anything because who knows what other teams are going to do. If we assume that Tony D'Angelo doesn't get claimed on waivers by any team, 
what happens with him in the Rangers? What can happen with him in the Rangers? Again, I don't want to say anything is absolute because things can always change, but I don't think anybody expects that Tony D'Angelo will play for the Rangers again. I mean, things can always change, but I don't believe anybody expects it. Now, a player has to go on regular waivers before they can be put on unconditional waivers to have a contract terminated. However, you have to have a basis to terminate a contract. You know, Patrick Berglund leaving Buffalo and saying, no, I need my time out. That was a basis to terminate. You see a lot of players from the minor leagues Mm -hmm. who aren't happy with where they are. And they simply say, you know what? I'd like to go to Europe and get a job there. I think I have a better opportunity. And there's a mutual agreement where they say, okay, we'll break the deal. If Tony D'Angelo doesn't want his contract terminated, the question is, will the Rangers be able to do it? And most people I spoke to on Sunday, they don't think that the Rangers will be able to unilaterally do it. But as someone said to me, you don't know unless you research it, do you try, whatever. Mm-hmm. But they say the odds aren't with them, although we, I could always be wrong. If he doesn't get claimed, they'll try to trade him. If they can't trade him, you know, here come the questions. Do you want him with your prospects in the American Hockey League? Do you want him around your team on the taxi squad? I think it's most likely he's sent home and he waits it out. And the other thing that someone reminded me of today is that D'Angelo doesn't turn 26 until October. So that means he can be bought out for one-third of his contract, not the regular two-thirds. Now, I had some people who said to me today that they wondered if anybody would claim him on waivers knowing that if it doesn't work, you can buy him out for one-third instead of two-third. But I don't know. Like The thing about this is that you really have to do a deep dive to make sure that you want to do this and 24 hours give you enough time to do it. I think the other thing too, Jeff, is any team that does it, there's going to be heat and our team's going to take that heat. You mentioned that there was and has been all Sunday a lot of stories out there about Tony D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like there has been a lot of pushback on these stories. I'm curious because a lot of this podcast revolves around how does this work? That question. In a situation like this, after you put that tweet out and some of the stories start coming out, how much of these do you as a journalist feel obliged to check out. I checked a lot. You know, here's the thing, like time moves so fast. It just seems to move so much faster in the social media era. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear all the rumors and you're like, okay, I I want to get the story or, but especially with these stories, you have to be so careful, right? There were a lot of things I looked into. You know, like I said, I have a feeling that this isn't going to be the end of what we've heard of it. I think this is going to trickle out over days. But I had some things I looked at and people were like, you're on the right track. Like what I described at the beginning happened. I had a number of people who said to me, that's what happened. But there were some other things that 
I heard rumors, and I'm sure people out there on social media have heard these same rumors. And I had people saying, don't go there or be very careful. You know, make sure you're 100% right because if you're half right, you can't be half right on this. So it's really challenging. It's There's no question it's really challenging because you want to do the story proper justice and you want to handle it right. And you just have to be very careful. It's it's what I can prove and what I can't prove. To the best of your knowledge from all of your phone calls and investigations today, is there anyone standing up and defending Tony D'Angelo that you know of? The only defending about him I've gotten in this situation is that's not true or that isn't true. Didn't happen the way you're describing it to me. Mm-hmm. That's the defense of him I've gotten is just make sure what you say is accurate because there's going to be a lot of fallout from this. And if I've had something like that explanation of what happened post game, like several different people said to me, what you're saying is true. And they weren't defending him for that. I think people were angry that he said that to Gorgiev post game. You don't do that. But some of the other stuff, People were saying to me, don't go there. That's not right. It was almost as if they were saying there's enough that he's wrong about or that he should be punished about that you don't need to go into areas where it wasn't true. As Elliot mentions, this story is still far from over. And with that, we'll start the podcast. It's 31 Thoughts presented by the GMC Sierra AT4. Okay, welcome once again to 31 Thoughts, the podcast, as we kick off another week. Uh, Elliot will uh, greet this week by revisiting something you mentioned on headlines on Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday, and that is trade requests. You know, we've already talked about the formula for getting out of town, and we talked about Patrick Lyon, and we talked about Pierre-Luc Dubois. What can you tell us about Sam Bennett of Calgary, Victor Mete of Montreal? In Bennett's case, I heard on Saturday morning that Sam Bennett would like to be moved from Calgary. You know, the first person I called was his agent, Darren Ferris, and I asked him if it was true. I also asked him to go on the record about it. And he thought about it and he agreed. And, you know, once you have someone on the record as saying it's true, you know, you have the story, right? The Flames were very quiet about it. Of course, they can't like it, right? Like nobody wants that kind of dirty laundry being aired. I think there's a couple other things here too. Sam Bennett was Brad Tree Living's first draft pick. I think there's an attachment there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Tree Living was invested in Bennett's success, and I think he has always been invested in Bennett's success. And I think he likes Bennett's game. Like Bennett hasn't always had the most impactful regular seasons, but he's been a good playoff performer for them including this past year when they were disappointed after beating Winnipeg, they lost to Dallas. You know, Bennett played pretty hard. He, he plays the kind of game that you need in the playoffs. And I, and I think Tree Living sees that. Your point about the regular season with Bennett is well made. And, you know, the evidence is in front of us on, you know, NHL.com or HockeyDB. But 
he's that guy that in the regular season, and we've talked about this, tough to quantify in this, you know, world of world of, well, show me this with the math. But, you know, when someone runs around on the Calgary Flames, generally that's the guy that's standing up to them. Generally, that's the guy that says, not on my watch, hippie. You're not going to do that. I agree with that. Him and Kachaka, I think, are the are the two guys. And you're right. Playoff time shows around. Like, how many times? We talked about this with Pat Maroon a couple of years ago, right? What was your line? There's guys that get you there. It's Mark Bergevin's line. They get you there and they get you through. Yeah, there are guys that get you there and there are guys that, that get you through. Any idea why? I just think he wants to be used more. And... With Lindholm playing center, they're really deep down the middle. You know, they've got Lindholm, they've got Monaghan, they've got Backlund. You know, that's three really good centers. And that means, you know, Bennett at best is your fourth line center or he's a third line winger. Hmm. And I think he just wants more of a role. Now, I don't think it's the first time he's ever done it. I've I had someone say to me that he's done it before and they've kind of always talked him down. But he was upset this year after the season started, and then I think he reiterated it Thursday night after they lost to Montreal. And I think we're in a situation here where, you know, I don't think the Flames are really that interested in doing it. They didn't want to talk to me, like I said, on Saturday, but the more I researched it, the more I heard they're really not in a hurry to do it. I'm curious to see now if anything changes now that it got out. Uh, Victor Mete Montreal, is this just a victim of the numbers game on the back end? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I don't think the Canadians have any issue with Victor Mete as a player. You know, they're very smart. They haven't put him on waivers because they know they're going to lose him for nothing. You know, last week on the headlines, I reported that he was available. I didn't know this about, you know, how far it had gotten. I heard Bergevin was really upset when that got out. And I think part of it is because, you know, they're going so well. You know, I understand Mete's frustration. Believe me, I understand Mete's frustration. If I wasn't playing, I'd be frustrated too. But if you're Montreal, you're, you're looking really good. You just had your first loss in regulation all year. It's the classic, who, who are people responsible for? Bergevin is responsible for his team. He cares about his team. He's like, we don't need this. This is not right. And, you know, Ferris is saying he's responsible for his client who hasn't played a game yet. And he's saying, I got to stand up for my client. But it was, a, it was a crazy couple of hours, that's for sure. Now, I think Pittsburgh has looked at Mete. Pittsburgh's looked at every single defenseman. Have you looked, have you looked at what's happened to that blue line? Now they lost Latang. It's horrendous. Mm-hmm. What's that? Smash unit. That blue line is a mash unit. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me that Pittsburgh's looked at Mete. And I think the other thing, too, is Montreal, they would like to have a body back. And also, you know, don't forget Mete's also making seven-something, right? So it's not like you can take a big salary in return. Mm-hmm. So I think Montreal is being really careful about this. I, I think they, at the end of the day, I think the Canadians really like the player. And he's caught in a numbers game as opposed to he's not good. Plus, also, like you look at what's happening with Dubois right now. Anybody you bring to Canada has got to sit through a 14-day quarantine, right? So these teams are coming, sitting here saying that adds to the problem. It ain't easy. Uh, You mentioned the Pittsburgh Penguins, and we will talk about this probably every podcast until the position is filled. The hunt for the new general manager. Where are we? 
Uh, I think it'll start to pick up in earnest this week. You know, Scott Mellenby, Renault Lavoie reported he took his name out. Uh, New Jersey has taken Tom Fitzgerald out of it. Those are a couple people who I think would have been in the mix. I'm not sure that J- where Jason Botterill stands in all of this. And initially it was reported that the Rangers would not give Chris Drury permission. I'm not sure about that. I still think he could very well be on the radar here. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard a couple of really interesting names. I heard Joe Neuendyke potentially. And another name I heard is someone we discussed on Friday's podcast. And that is, could Jason Carmanos be back in the picture? Jim Rutherford's former right-hand man. Yes. Can we backtrack to Joe Newendike there for a second? Mm-hmm. I like Joe Newendike a lot. I think Joe Newendike's a really smart person. And I'm glad to hear that his name is back in the mix yeah. for management positions. I don't want to get too much into it. I'm just glad that his name is out there again. I got all the time in the world for Joe Newendike. And, and you know, I'll tell you this, like Joe Newendike is a guy who's gone dark for a bit. I think he was frustrated at the way some things went before. Yeah, I think he's a really good person. And if he wants to get back in, I, I think the game's better with him around. So I hope it means that he wants to kind of get back in a little bit more. And the Jason Carmanos name, should that surprise people? It surprised me when I heard it, but, you know, we spoke, pretty nicely about him on Friday morning. And, you know, when he got let go, a lot of people were shocked Mm -hmm. because him and Rutherford had been together for a long time, right? Like, I think they're going to talk to 10 to 15 people and whittle it down. Chris mentioned John Ferguson Jr. I think Michael Feud is around there. I think Mike Gillis is around there. I think Lawrence Gilman's around there. I think Drury, there was a concern that he wouldn't be there. I I think he is going to be there. But I, the two one new ones I heard this weekend were Neuendijk and Carmanos. Before we get to Kevin Bieksa, who's our, our guest today on the podcast, he's in transit going from uh, Ontario to California. I wanted to ask you, we didn't have time last podcast, but I wanted to ask you about Lee Stempniak. Yes. And this new title that he has with the Arizona Coyotes, Hockey Data Strategist. Before I make my nickel and dime point about it, can you describe what his position is with Arizona right now? Because I find it completely unique. and I love the position. He is the person who is to take the data and put it in a way that is easy to understand or acceptable to understand for the people who can use it, whether it's coaches, executives, or players. There's a book I read called Big Data Baseball. Mm-hmm. It's all about the Pittsburgh Pirates and how they brought analytics into their organization and how it helped the players. And the chapter or the part that stood out, they tell the analytics people that they have to be in the clubhouse. So if the players have a question about information they're being given, they're there and they can answer the question. And the Pirates felt very strongly that that helped. It really helped the players understand why it mattered and it helped their communication. And, you know, unfortunately, Stepniak really can't go in the dressing room, but that's kind of the role I see it. Okay, this is why this data matters. This is why it can help. And I'm going to explain it to you. 
and that's his role. See, and to me, the key there is he was an ex-player. Yeah. You know, 14 seasons, 900 games. Like, he's not going to walk into a room and no one's going to say, who's that guy? Well, that guy was, you know, 90 games short of playing 1,000 games in the NHL. I'm a big fan of the Effectively Wild podcast from Fangraph, speaking of baseball. I think Ben Lindbergh is excellent. I think yeah. Meg Rowley is fantastic. I love I love that podcast. And they brought up an interesting point a while ago that when I saw your Lee Snepniak story in 31 Thoughts, I thought of them right away. And they made an interesting point. Baseball, for the longest time, like all sports, was full of managers that played the game. And then that started to change as the analytics movement, sabermetrics movement moved into baseball and really took hold. Then it became, you know, clubhouses and management staffs full of people that didn't play the game, but could think the game. And since there's been a couple of generations now of baseball, you know, bathed in this way of understanding, or as I would say, measuring the game, you're starting to see more players understand and use these numbers to their advantage. And the byproduct of that is you're starting to see the return of ex-ball players in more traditional management positions because it's no longer, you know, the people that do the sabermetrics over here and the ball players over here, the ball players understand now what that all means and how it can help them. And they now all of a sudden are in a unique position of one, having played the game, understanding all the things that go into it, but two, understanding things like underlying numbers, like metrics that matter that might not be obvious. And I saw your Stepniak story and I thought to myself, if I'm a player in the NHL right now and I'm thinking about a management position or staying in the game past my career, I'm following that model. I'm trying to understand everything that Eric Tulski in Carolina knows. Yeah. Like I'm trying to like, for the longest time, I always thought, you know, if I'm a player, I don't worry about that. I don't worry about my game. I don't think like, Ooh, I got to get five shots to heat up my course. C. And I, I, I always used to say, don't think like that, just play. But I think I'm starting to change on that, that you should understand that if you want to have a career after your playing career is over. I really thought that was profound from Megan Ben on the uh, Effectively Wild podcast who pointed that out because you are seeing it in baseball. And we all know that hockey's behind baseball when it comes to approval and understanding and you know blending traditional with, yep. with, with new ways of thinking. And I saw your Stepniak story and I said, good on that guy because he's that guy who played 900 games and understands the new way to measure it. I don't know that I have a question other than I say, good for Lee Stepniak, Elliot. And he won't be the last one. Everybody's going to start to look at this kind of position. Even for where we, we, we work in television, how many times have we said, if only there was someone that could break this down really simply and effectively and make it digestible quickly for television? We did a lot of analytics our first two years. And do you remember what the focus group said? They hated them. It's just math, math, math. But it, because I always maintain that it wasn't math used to tell stories or it wasn't numbers used to tell stories. Actually, there's someone who listens to this podcast I know who will laugh because 
We always have this argument that he believes there's a way that numbers that can be used to tell good stories on TV. And I tend to agree with that. I don't think we've completely found it yet. And I'll tell you something else. I also do believe that there's a lot of people who are like, you know what? I deal with this at work or this forces us to make very hard, painful decisions at work. And I don't want this while I watch my sports. But I love doing the analytics the first two years. But when the overwhelming audience comes back and says, we hate this, then it still shows we're searching for the right way to do this. But Elliot, between you and me, you miss the puck wall, don't you? <laughs> I do miss the puck wall. I miss it a lot. And whenever we walk up to the commentator's room, there's PJ's puck wall is still out there. Uh, I miss that. I miss the world's greatest pre-pregame show. And we're going to miss Kevin Bieksa on Wednesdays. Uh, he is uh, on his way back to California. I do understand he's still working Hockey Night in Canada, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, you'll hear from Kevin Bieksa en route back to California. 31 Thoughts returns. So, Elliot, Kevin Bieksa is with us, and on Wednesday at during Scotiabank Wednesday Night Hockey, at one point I said to Kevin, Kevin, we can't miss you if you won't leave. Well, I guess, Kevin, you took that to heart because you've left, and you're on the road, and you're driving back home after doing Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. First of all, welcome back to the podcast. Second of all, where are you? Well, I am in Toledo, Ohio right now, visiting two good friends from university that uh, live here now with their four beautiful children. But uh, the real story, Jeff, is I made fun of you on Wednesday night and you complained. Oh, wait a second. I, I was going to bring this up. Like, is it true that you were ordered to stand down and stop making fun of Merrick on Wednesday's show? What? People were worried about Jeff. They think he's very sensitive and they're like, you're, you're <laughs> making too many Jeff jokes about we don't need a host. And then Jeff was kind of crying behind the scenes. And so basically I got fired. I got fired. He got scolded. He got scolded. So you know what I, what I was going to do is I was going to go on Twitter and say like, yeah, we're going to have a fight and whoever wins, like one of us was going to return to Wednesday and whoever won the fight was going to be there. I got verbally abused, Jeff, so the fight won't happen. I got Randy Carlisle by the producer, Marzi. Yeah, Sportsnet muscle, Matt Marstrom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He gave it. What? People are worried about you. They think you're very, very delicate. They, they don't think you can handle it. When it was over, BX was like whimpering in the corner. I thought I was going to have to call HR. <laughs> what did I say to you on the first night? I challenge you to offend me. I don't listen to you when you talk. <laughs> Evidently, it took three shows. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, you know what I was pissed off about on Wednesday? I'll be 100%, I mentioned this to Elliot on the way out of the, the building on Wednesday night. I was pissed off at myself. Why? Because I didn't have any control over that show whatsoever. Like, it was fun and it was good and all that. <laughs> but I remember leaving the set and going, man, did I suck tonight or what? You're supposed to be in control? Well, I mean, that's kind of the position of the host. I mean, I think it made for great segments. I just remember leaving and going, man, I was awful tonight. You know what, Jeff? I feel bad for you, but I can't say I've ever had that feeling leaving the studio. So, <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Uh, you know what was funny is that like on Saturday night, I tried to go uh, toe-to-toe with PJ and like 
So one of my, when you were ripping, or not PJ, uh, sorry, with Kevin, same thing. Kevin, PJ, same thing, basically. <laughs> tough, both tough. Uh, yeah, both tough. So Kevin makes fun of my jacket. And um, I said, well, look at that tie. Like, it looks like it's from my grandmother's couch. And one of my buddies was like, I thought that was a great line until I realized that was Kevin's daughter's Christmas gift. And then you just look like a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) She got that for me two Christmases ago. And after I called her after the show and I said, I'm really sorry that man made fun of you on national television in front of <laughs> 2.5 million people, Reese. Like, I still love it. And she goes, don't bring my don't bring my pictures that I drew for you in for him to make fun of those, too. <laughs> <laughs> Just bullying my ele- – no, she didn't. I didn't even call her. She was fine. She she thought it was funny when she heard about it. She's a BX. She just laughs it off. Yeah, we got some thick skin. How's the experience this time now that you're uh- – super comfortable on television uh, it's good it's good i can't complain uh, the last four weeks have been fun working the, the wednesdays until i got fired and then the saturdays <laughs> it's been nice to get two days in a week you kind of feel like you're in the rhythm and becomes routine so now the challenge is doing this from california where i'm not sitting in the room in between periods watching the game with the guys and we're not talking. We're not throwing those little jabs. Now it's going to be very, very difficult for me to sit there and make fun of Elliot when I haven't seen him in, in, in like a month. So I'm sure you'll find a way. <laughs> I'll still do it, but it'll just be a little bit more of a challenge. So you're driving home, right? You're driving from Toronto to California. So how is this route going to look? This route is going to be a little bit different because I've done this drive a few times. The quickest way would be to go through the Midwest, Colorado, and then down through Utah. And I didn't want to chance it with the snow and, and just the weather. So I decided to go south, which is not that much further, but it's safer. So I'm going through Toledo, Cincinnati, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and then through Memphis to Little Rock, Arkansas, and then Oklahoma City, Texas, and uh, New Mexico. So it's going to be like the old Route 66 uh couple new states i've been to i think i've been to like 35 states and i'm I'm knocking off four new ones so i I enjoy the drive and i enjoy seeing new places and i have my dog with me so we'll we'll go on some nice walks and hikes and uh explore a little bit and i I like that kind of thing now are you are you a lead foot guy like do you drive fast when you do drives like this i from what i found the best thing to do is cruise control Hmm. especially with the car i have the rental habit so it has the cruise control where if you come up to somebody it slows you down automatically. So you really don't have to touch the pedal at all. And then you can move around and you can like stretch your back and your legs and kind of keep loose that way. And uh, it just makes it easy. You put on cruise control, you set it like whatever, 12 miles over the speed limit so you don't get pulled over and you just cruise. So do you try to be a hero and deny yourself sleep or do you say to yourself, you know what, I'm starting to get drowsy, I better pull over? Well, I'm a bit of a soldier anyways, Jeff, as you know. So, um, like, I was going to plan – I was planning on driving tonight after I left here and, and putting in another five-hour shift and getting to Louisville. But it's all weather advisories here, and there's snowstorm coming, and it's already starting to snow. So I thought I'd stay tonight. But I'll, I'll wake up early tomorrow, and I'll put in a good – probably a good 14, 15-hour day. Just grind away. Soldier. What was the story with the nine rental cars you had? <laughs> I was at three Enterprises today. I had to drop off one rental in Hamilton. Then I had to pick up one at the airport to drop off direct at Detroit airport. And then I had to pick up another one at Detroit airport to drop off in California airport. Just jumping through hoops right now, but 
that's the only way to do it to one way drop off. You can't one way drop off from Canada, to the U S right now, especially that far away. So that's the logistics of everything. From all your time, Kevin, in the NHL, who was the worst driver? Who do you not want to drive with? Kess was a really bad driver. He would drive really fast too, but you just know when, when somebody's driving the car and you just feel like they're not in control, you know what I mean? Like they just overcorrecting and like, just kind of like gripping the wheel too tight. And then there's like some people when they drive and they have like the, the wheels in like two fingers and they're just like steering and they're in control. Well, Kess was scary because he, it didn't seem like he had a lot of control, but he would drive so fast. And he always had nice cars. He always had like the fastest cars, like Bentleys and Porsches and everything. And he's just flying down the highway in California. And it's, he's a scary guy to be in the car with. Of all the guys in the NHL now, who is the one that texts you the most saying, I'm really not happy about what was said on air about me tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably have better contacts than I do as far no as way. I, I'm a positive guy, though. We, we all know on this conversation here that I'm a positive guy. So very rarely do I say something negative about a guy. Um, Corey Perry said a couple times, thanks for the nice things you said about me. But my wife says there's still too many negatives. <laughs> and I said, and I said, I'm sorry. Like as soon as I see you, the, the negatives just pop into my head. Like can't skate very fast, like goofy guy. So I said, take the good with the bad pairs. I go, it's the good with the bad. That's, that's all I can promise. And he's like, okay, fine. I, he's like, I'm okay with it. <laughs> Let me follow that up with something that Elliot and I talk about this all the time. Uh, you don't necessarily cheer for teams, but you can cheer for players. Uh, and you cheer for people to do well and people that you like or people that you think deserve something. Of all the players in the NHL right now, who does Kevin Bieksa cheer for? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Like, specific, like who do I cheer for the most? I cheer yeah, for like, Nick, who, do you, who, who do you want to do well? I want all of my, my friends that I've either trained with over the years in the summer that I know are good people and, and good players and, and work hard and care. Those are the guys I want to do well. Like a guy like this year, Nick Ritchie, who's had a kind of a couple off years. And then I turn the TV on and he's on the first unit power play in front of the net with Boston. Like that makes me happy when I can see a guy like that, you know, who I know is a good person, see him doing well. Ben Schrott's another guy from Montreal. Like I have, I've skated and trained with Ben since he was 15 years old. So, you know, originally it started with, we would just, you know, train because all the pro guys and, and some young guys would skate. But then as we got older, we developed a pretty strong friendship. And I tried to pass along like everything I've learned over my career to him. To, so to see him now where he's a top two mm -hmm. defenseman on a Canadian, in a Canadian market, like that's awesome. That's super fulfilling for me to see all the accolades he's getting. Where's Cam Fowler in this mix? Fowler's very high too for me. Cam was uh, uh, one of my partners for two. I played with him for two years out of the three and still keep in close contact with him, still talk to him often and just an awesome guy. Like looks a little bit grumpy, but that's an American, right? Americans are grumpy, but just a, a super great teammate, always positive, never, never yells, never points the finger. He'll always blame himself before anybody else, even if it's not his fault. He'll take the blame. I just, I have all the time in the world for guys like that. Josh Manson, another guy, mm. he's having a tough year. He just got injured. He's out for six weeks. Like another guy who, when he came up, 
He was super respectful. He, he basically took my job uh, after three years and I was totally okay with it because I just felt like he deserved it. He came up, I said, Mance, you got to play the exact same way I do. So if I fight eight times a year, you're fighting eight times a year. If I'm throwing a big hit every game, you're throwing a big hit. And he ended up taking that to heart and basically took my position in Anaheim, which I'm totally okay with because I'm proud that I had a small part in that. I love that answer. Um, you drive safe. You be well. And uh, as you always know, the door is wide open for Kevin Bieksa in whatever we do, Kevin. Well, the pleasure is all yours, guys. So thank you. <laughs> Make sure you call me when you get home. I will, I'll check in, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> Make sure you write. I want a postcard from everywhere, Kevin. I'll be in Kentucky tomorrow if anybody wants to talk for three hours. And that's Kevin Bieksa. You know, my favorite end of the night closing song is Closing Time by Lyle Lovett, Elliot. But we're not going to play oh, that. Oh, great song. Great song. I know, I know. Uh, mixing sound all evening. Oh, it's a beautiful song. Uh, we're going to take you out with this, though. And this one is uh, for Kevin. A little song for the road. As I know you're listening to this podcast, Kevin, because you are on it. Taking us out a three-piece band out of Hamilton, Ontario. New Hands released their 10-track debut album, Leave It With The Night, in 2015 after a spree of singles. From that album, here's Decide and Conquer by New Hands. For you, Kevin Bieksa, listening to this podcast, it is 31 Thoughts. Thanks for joining us today. It started at 19. This lack of discipline, routine, repeat. It's not that I don't care, I care, I'm careless